0: This podcast is for investment professionals only.
1: Hello and welcome back to Rich Pickings, Fidelity's asset allocation podcast. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, and you join me by some rather noisy starlings in the shadow of St Paul's in the City of London. And we have an inflation special episode for you today. Where has it gone? Will it come back? Or has it been hiding in plain sight all along? Also, why investors are losing their sweet tooth for sugar? Listen on to find out more. With me in the studio to work through the whys and wherefores of this month's asset allocation are Wenwen Wen Lindroth, lead cross-asset strategist, Tim Foster, a portfolio manager on the fixed income team, and David Buckle, head of investment solutions design. Welcome to you all. Hi. Hello. Now, before we dive in, a non-CV question. Um, can you tell me what non-sporting activity uh, you'd have a good chance of winning a medal for if it were turned into an Olympic event? Why don't I come to you, David.
2: Uh, I went to art school when I left school Did you? Yes, yeah, so it would probably be some kind of art competition or something Speed like that Speed watercolouring I'm more of an oil man actually
1: I, I, I should <laughs> so, have known, so. I should have <laughs> known <laughs> When? When? how about you?
0: Growing orchids and nurturing them back to life so if you have an orchid that's not doing well and you give it to me I can more likely than not revive it.
1: This sounds like the marathon of the Fidelity <laughs> Olympics. Okay, jolly good. And Tim, how about you? Oh,
3: goodness, I'm a bit more prosaic than this. I've, I've been doing a lot of eating recently. My, <laughs> my wife got me a cheese subscription for my birthday, so <laughs> every month a huge quantity of cheese arrives, and I kind of have uh, been stuffing my face with it, basically. So that's that's kind of my well, current... Well, I uh, have to ask you about your Olympic
1: dreams uh, yes, well. yes, yes. Yeah. Jolly good. Okay, right, let's get to it then. So when, when. Um, Fidelity's uh, July asset allocation, the house view is agreed on by uh, each of the asset classes. Tell me about that. Where are are we and what's changed
0: Sure. Um, I'll start with government bonds. We've made no change to our near-term view to continue to overweight. Um, And this is due to our expectation of um, weak inflation readings, potentially weak reading out of Germany, expectation that Draghi is going to continue to outdove the market. And with valuations being unchanged on a month-to-month basis, we're still overweight in the near term. over the medium term, we've downgraded government bonds to a moderate, moderate underweight. And this is a combination of factors. China should continue to provide stimulus to its economy. Um, The U.S. is not going to be quite as bad as people suspect in our analysis. And we think that the central bank action is going to have some positive effect. And so as a result, there should be growth some 12 to 24 months out, and this will be negative for government bonds.
1: But long term, you've gone even more negative on on government bonds.
0: Yes, I think from a long term point of view, it's hard to see them being lower than they the are negative 20 basis points, give or take in Europe. Um, And on a long term secular view, we think that US, Europe, guilds, etc, are going to revert to the mean. We don't know exactly when, but they are not sustainable at such a low historical level.
1: We hope, David. Um, (laughs) could Could they stay there forever?
2: Well, it's difficult to see them go much lower, I think, is the point. Maybe they stay here for a while before they go back up. But the problem is that the yield curve is so incredibly flat, meaning long maturity bonds have the same yield as short maturity bonds. There's no carry. There's no extra Mm. interest for taking that long-dated debt. So you have a very low carry in an environment where it's much more likely that yields in the medium-term to long-term rise makes it an unattractive asset class.
1: And what about equities?
0: In the near term, uh, we've upgraded from a moderate underweight to neutral. The underweight was not quite the right call for the last month. And what we didn't get right was the coordinated central bank dovish pivot, which led to risk on across basically, you know, equities, high yield, investment grade.
1: But you've not got overweight.
0: No. um, With the S&P up 23% um, this year, we feel that it's best to be cautious on valuation. And at the high level, we're neutral. But within equities and the different sub-asset classes, there are some overweights.
1: Neutral cash. Um, Tell me about credit, though.
0: In credit, we remain neutral in both the near and the medium term versus June. We're mindful of valuations. Returns have been in double digits for both investment grade and high yield. Um, so cautious on the valuation. And our PMs also think about the fact that we're in a late cycle economic period and things may turn for the worse from here. So to be on the cautious side between the late stage fundamentals and the valuations, we're neutral both in the near and the medium term.
1: Okay, so those are the uh, headline views, but tell me about the stronger convictions that underlie them.
0: Within equities, uh, we have a strong positive conviction on growth stocks and a focus on quality. We also really like emerging markets, both from the equities and the credit side. And then on the strong negative conviction side, we are underweight Europe over the medium and the long term. And uh, we're also underweight banks, given the outlook for low rates for longer.
1: Okay, okay, and just one more of the strong overweights we've got um, brent oil, and there's an awful lot going on um, in in oil at the moment david yeah. why are we why do we now have this
2: strong positive conviction for for oil yeah i mean there's two sides to any security there's the supply of the security and the demand for the security. For oil, there's two types of demand. There's speculative demand from those traders trying to play it. By the it. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's also more economic fundamental demand. So as the economy grows, so there would be more demand for energy. The other side of the coin is the supply side and of course at the moment we're seeing in the news there's all sorts of disruption taking place as to the supply or risk to supply of oil. Okay, so if we've got oil price
1: uh, rising, Tim uh, here we land in your area of interest, Um, that's obviously going to have an impact
3: on inflation. Yes, and we we certainly think that one of the reasons we have for being kind of modestly overweight uh, inflation is that we think that there's good prospects for oil prices going forward if we think that you know we could be on the cusp of a bit of an economic rebound uh, um, in the developed world and that that leads to better demand for oil as well. So good prospects there and then good prospects for inflation from very low levels, I'd say. Indeed. But we've got used to a world where there is no inflation. And, you know,
1: David, the picture you were painting about government bonds sort of assumes that inflation just isn't a worry.
3: Uh, What would be the impact if we did start seeing a spike uh, in inflation? There's a kind of there's a kind of negative impact on risk assets. So that's that's I suppose what you've got to be a bit wary of. It probably is not a central case. It's more of a question of hedging against the risk of a, a spike up in inflation as well. So you've got to think that a, um, a short-lived spike is probably generally bad for risk assets, but but okay for index-linked bonds.
2: This is the scenario that worries me most, actually, coming from the perspective of a balanced portfolio owner. Because if we do have a return to inflation, as you've pointed out, the market's not expecting it. And as Tim said, it's not particularly a high probability scenario. But if it happens, it will negatively affect bonds. Bond yields will rise sharply because it's such a surprise. And the very fact of bond yield rising will impact the equity market negatively. So for both sides of a balanced portfolio, the assets are are going to get hurt. So I do think, although it's a low likelihood event at the moment,
1: does it keep you awake at night?
2: It, this is the one thing that does keep me awake at night, Richard, yes. And there are certain things you can do about it. You can hedge with inflation-linked bonds. The problem is that many of those in the in the developed market, especially in places like the UK, are expensive. But there are other parts of the world where the index-linked bonds are a little cheaper, and I favour using those... As part of the bond portfolio to hedge this tail risk. So, Tim, how how do you prepare then? It's it's just a a risk at the moment. How do you think? Well, I I think I think we
3: balance off we kind of the likelihood of the risk together with the sort of cheapness or the expensiveness of 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 the bonds that we buy. So, David's absolutely right that index link bonds are very expensive in the UK, but we think they're quite cheap in the US, for example. So, generally speaking, we trade you know US inflation link bonds from the long side to 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 get that cheapness and provide the hedge if necessary.
2: And the important thing from a total portfolio perspective is. Inflation tends to be global. If we have this inflation shock it'll be global. And therefore even no as, mm. right. Mm. So even if you're a UK or European investor,
3: you probably have protection to some degree by buying the US inflation linked bonds. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a, the correlation across markets is very high. I guess the other thing to bear in mind is the sort of structural factors that have been bringing inflation lower over the last 20 to 30 years they're pretty global as well so there's a there's a very close link it seems between aging populations and lower inflation. Japan for example with the lowest levels of inflation actually the US although obviously the population is still aging actually relatively well positioned amongst developed markets so relatively higher inflation compared to and sort of and sort of of Germany in the middle for example with somewhat aging and somewhat low inflation.
1: So Tim listening to you you sound Fairly sanguine on the on the risks of of inflation, not unaware that they're there, but um, but but not kept awake like um, David. When when uh, what about you? Where where are you on this?
0: It's really important in terms of what the central banks decide to do. So from an investment perspective, we've really got to get this right. Um, The other aspect of inflation that I've been focused on because I spend a lot of time um, looking at populism and its impact on the markets is really: are we reading the signals correctly on inflation? Is it actually higher? in some ways than is being reported by the central banks. Um, So what would
1: be the indicators there that would suggest that um, we're not measuring it correctly?
0: Well, political unrest is a very strong signal. So, you know, if you look at protests that... that,
1: People feel worse off um, than the data would suggest they ought to.
0: Yes, exactly. The teacher strikes in the U.S. over the last few years, um, asking for higher pay in many ways, the um, vote, the Brexit vote, and then the vote for um, Trump in 2016 from parts of our respective countries that felt left behind that, uh, you know, perhaps are, are not being able to afford what they used to afford. Um, so these are expressions, outward expressions of what you might call inflation in the real world. And I would also refer back to um, the Arab Spring in Egypt, how bread prices had had spiked. And that was a trigger as well for social unrest.
1: Although that you'd probably pick up, that would, uh, bread bread prices, that would be picked up. Yes, it it uh, absolutely would be. And I think
3: there's no no doubt that we had a sort of five-year period after the financial crisis where um, inflation was running ahead of of wages, so people you know across the developed world certainly were experiencing negative real wage growth. But the odd thing is that's actually reversed in the last few years. So from sort of twenty thirteen twenty fourteen, you know we've seen wages pick up and inflation actually stay relatively contained. So I guess that's just the lag from the you know politics, I suppose, is following uh, real wages with a five year lag or something like that. Uh, David, you were talking earlier about negative uh, interest rates. Yes.
1: How does that translate to consumers? What, what yeah. impact does this, that
2: have? The really important point here is the distinction between someone's affordability and the level of inflation. They're different things. Uh, and at the moment, we've got fairly moderate levels of inflation, but they are nonetheless running higher than the prevailing interest rates for most countries. And that means that if someone chooses to put off their consumption, but invests instead at a minimum you'd want to preserve your ability to buy the same goods in the future you can buy now and that is not happening because the capital markets through interest rates are not keeping up with the inflation rate and it's that which is causing this standard of living impact through. It's uh, a a second order effect I suppose of um, of how, how, how people feel it. I would argue it's first order Richard in the sense what that people are Going into more risky assets, this is what supported the equity market for all these years, that people are forced into riskier assets because the safe assets can't keep up with the rate of inflation. They might not be as aware of it as they are
1: of their uh, income compared with prices in the the shops, I suppose, my perception. When, when?
0: Okay, I have some statistics I'd like to share.
1: Oh, I love a statistic I do. Hit us, hit us with it. Okay.
0: All right, I'm going to suggest there is some hyperinflation in some parts of, of the market and goods and services. And uh, I took a look at uh, the increase in London transport tube and bus prices between 2000 and 2016. Uh, the price of a tube ticket in zones 1 through 4 in London rose 227%. That's Ouch. 14% a year. Moving to another part of the world and f- for a service that one would think is essential um, UC tuition so in other words if you live in uni- in California and you want a college education at the best school system university system in California that's the UC system in 1994 you would have paid 4354 a year. As a resident, in 2019, today, you need to pay $13,900 a year for one year at University of California. That's an an increase of 319% over 25 years. That's a 13% annual increase.
1: Who'd, who'd be a millennial? But Tim, it, yes. tell me what you think about this. I mean, there, there are lots of examples that we could choose. I know when, when um, you're worried about rent rises in Berlin, for example, which have also
3: um, gone up uh, as it becomes a more attractive place to, um, uh, to live. But... I, I think my concern with that is I, I still think that the statistics agencies are doing a good job actually of uh, capturing inflation for the average consumer, which is which is their job after all. So we've also at the same time we've seen you know significant deflation in all kinds of electrical goods. Obviously, you get an awful lot more sort of telecom services now than you did ten years ago, and this is something which the the agencies struggle to capture. But you know I think I think are doing their best to capture as well. So I'd be concerned about picking on specific inflationary examples. I think the sort of bigger Picture is an interesting one because we're picking up. We've kind of come full circle as well from David talking about um, uh, negative real interest rates. So you know, interest rates in the economy being lower than the level of inflation as a consequence, really, of central bank policy. That's what central banks do. They they push interest rates down to stimulate the economy. What a lot of that has done is go into asset prices, as, as David described, and that that helps feed inequality. So we're kind of picking all all the big sort of themes of the day are sort of wrapped into wrapped into one problem, really. But the thing about inequality is that richer people have got richer and have got higher incomes. They're competing for they're competing for the same sort of finite supply, I guess, of luxury goods and services. So what we definitely see is inflation for wealthier people is certainly running way above the you know, the, the measured the measured sort of averages. Okay, but so far we've been talking about developed uh, market
1: examples, so the ones that um, you were giving uh, when when on uh, UK and US these are developed markets. But there is a different picture. Happening elsewhere in in Eastern Europe for example Tim?
3: Yes I think actually if you look at uh, Poland and Hungary for example which are uh, economies which have experienced you know much lower rates of immigration actually recently there's been a real increase a real spike upwards actually in wage costs and that maybe shows a maybe a bit of a roadmap for some developed market countries actually in in, in the future well maybe um, you know shows the way I mean we've seen actually quite rapidly increasing UK wage inflation for example recently so uh, just as a inward migration slows I think so maybe those uh, central Eastern European countries are sort of giving us a roadmap for um, what happens if you re- if you incre- allow wage costs to increase and a political mirror as well? Coming back to Wen-Wen's point. Well, and, that, and, and really as well, the sort of natural natural thing to happen as you get into late cycle. Actually, we, we've we've all seen the charts of lower share of uh, profits going to workers and higher share going to capital. Uh, but naturally, I think as the cycle gets longer and you move into a sort of late cycle environment, you see wages go up and, and workers getting a bit a bit more of the share of those benefits.
0: I think this plays very well into the political reaction. To- to the Washington Consensus, which was about free markets and free movement of people. And now what we're seeing is, you know, a pushback against that, putting limits on free movement of people and of goods through the trade wars. Theoretically, this should produce inflation. It should,
3: it should be inflationary. But uh, uh, that was probably a better kind of inflation, I'd argue, if it sort of stabilizes the political situation and allows the, the average worker to take a bigger bigger slice of the pie home, it's probably a healthy thing.
2: And you ask about who'd be a millennium, but actually the Bureau of Labor Statistics has flagged funerals as the highest growing yes, area. Yes, so perhaps millennials is the best place to <laughs> who,
1: be. Who cares uh, by that stage if your, if your funeral is expensive? Um, uh, a sobering thought, thank you. Right, enough on inflation. Let's take a broader look at the state of the global economy and Fidelity's leading indicator. To hear more, I spoke to markets analyst Ian Sampson. Well, we've turned a booth in the... Fidelity Refectory into an impromptu recording studio now. So Ian joins me. Tell me about the fly readings for July because
4: um, it's a bit softer but not as bad as all that. Um, is, is that summary correct? That's a pretty good summary. So despite data broadly coming in weaker for June, uh, the Fidelity Leading Indicator has held on just to being in that top right quadrant which shows growth positive and accelerating. So an improving picture,
1: clinging to optimism, was something you said in uh, in the big meeting that, uh, that we had a little bit earlier.
4: Um, what does it mean? How would you
1: analyse this?
4: Well, undoubtedly, after the very weak patch of global growth in the, the last quarter of uh, 2018 and the first quarter of this year, we do seem to be heading for some acceleration. Now, in terms of the actual growth levels that we're heading to, the Fidelity indicator is not yet that positive uh maybe just about trend if anything i think the the biggest source of optimism for me this month is that this really should have been the fly where you saw the biggest hit from the latest tariff escalation so that kicked in kind of may june time and still global data is holding up But what's
1: holding the overall fly figure back then? Because although it's in positive territory, if you look at the components, um, most of them aren't. There's only one that is. Take us talk us through it.
4: Sure. So the fly is divided into five subsectors. Only one of these actually shows particularly strong levels of growth, indeed above trend growth, and that's global trade, which Which, is slightly which is odd. (laughs) It's It's given you what you just said about tariffs. It is counterintuitive. But what we saw in global trade was a real Bottom at the start of this year, when you would had lots of orders in ahead of the December deadline uh, for U.S.-China tariff escalation. Now that deadline never actually came to pass, uh, and so what you saw is there had been a big build-up in inventories of global goods, uh, and then a huge collapse uh, in orders uh, around the start of this year, which has actually made a very low base from which uh, we oh. are now accelerating from. So it's the damn lies of statistics then that are, that are painting this. Sure, but I wouldn't uh, put too much emphasis on that. It's clear that across all, all of the sectors, we are looking better than we did, say, February-March time. We've seen a broad-based acceleration, and indeed four of the five sectors are accelerating. Okay, okay, we've got that picture. Um, what about other things that you're looking at um,
1: around the world? If you look at um, Purchasing Managers Index, for example, what are they telling you about um, trade wars and tariffs?
4: So interestingly, the global PMIs outside the U.S. have really sort of stabilized, not at good levels, indeed at quite discouraging levels, but they've stabilized since um, the first quarter, uh, whereas the U.S. continues to slow with the ISM surveys, for instance, catching down to the rest of the world. And that's a theme that we see in the data throughout the fly.
1: OK, so as we go into well, in certain parts of Europe and the States, it becomes the doldrums now as we go into the
4: holiday season. What are the things that we should be looking at in the next couple of months? One thing that I'm watching very closely is Chinese credit data. Chinese stimulus tends to lead both upturns and downturns in the in the global cycle, and you've seen a few quite strong months of credit growth coming out of China, and that should, with a lag, feed through into stronger global growth. Of course, we'll be wanting to watch what the US Federal Reserve does, given that it sets global monetary conditions. Uh, these have already eased quite a lot, which should underpin growth, but let's watch for that. And finally, I think global trade data will be really key to watch. Everything from Korean exports, which gives a good read on the tech cycle, to US imports of goods from the rest of the world. In Sampson, a whistle-stop tour of the data
1: around the world. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. David uh, we heard Mm. there it's a mixed picture but um, Ian doesn't sound depressed at all as he rattles through all this but he did point out the US slowing and you know how are policymakers um, reacting to that
2: yeah I I think the important thing here is it's not a it's not binary you don't run at trend growth or you have a recession it's possible to run at sub-trend growth but not having a, a hard landing so to speak Um, So I I think the data is supportive of the view that Ian's just given. And uh, I, I don't know if Ian takes comfort or not, but Fed Chair Powell is of a similar mindset. In the recent statement, he called out that the risks were more to the downside. But in the projections that the Federal Reserve lays out, they haven't changed their GDP projection at all. It's the same as it was six months ago. What the Fed's more concerned about is that this this low but not recessionary level of economic growth is being accompanied by lower than expected inflation. And it's that lower than expected inflation that the Federal Reserve is responding to at the moment with these expected rate cuts rather than growth itself.
1: You were talking earlier about a a balanced portfolio. How close are you to advocating a 100% equities uh, (laughs)
2: uh, portfolio? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a, it's a challenging you're, si- you're sitting within swiping distance <laughs> yeah. of Tim here. Yeah, so. yeah, yes, no, it's, it's a challenging environment. Um, I, I do still believe in, in balanced portfolios. You have to look at the level of the equity market. And although I'm personally constructive, because there are so many people reaching for yield, because the negative real interest rate, which we've talked about, I think that p- provides more support than, than is typically thought of for the, the risk markets. What, what I'm concerned about is, and, and again, this taps into the points that Ian was making, the, bond, the government bond market has got a yield curve, which is indicative of some very bad slowdown in economic growth. And I don't see that. The Federal Reserve don't see that. Ian Sampson doesn't see that. It doesn't look like that's coming through. And so that feels overpriced for me. Now, The reason I wouldn't go all in equities, one, there's risk there. But two, there's also a corporate bond market. And where I would go is out of the government bond markets and into the corporate bond markets, not take so much duration risk, but take a bit more credit risk. To create this balanced portfolio, which fits with um, the house view that Wen Wen was talking about, Tim, how are you positioned?
3: Yeah, no, I'd certainly certainly agree with uh, David's point on the corporate bond market, and you don't forget as well. It's not just the Fed uh, signaling sort of precautionary easing, easing stance. Of course, the ECB. It seems um, uh, reasonably likely they'll do some additional uh, purchase program, particularly in the corporate bond corporate bond purchase program. Uh, I mean, we've seen a pretty good rally in in spreads of corporate bonds already this year, but um, I think that could go further as and when that um, that is announced. So yeah, definitely. definitely. Definitely definitely a good place to be. Well, that ECB action might be something to help David um, sleep better at night.
1: Right, it's time now to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? And what's so grim that you drop it like a hot potato? Let me come to you first, Wen Wen.
0: On my hotcakes, I'm going to pick large cap growth stocks. There's continued investor support for growth stocks as investors reach for yield. Um, Also, the technical picture is positive with central bank purchases um, of equities and also share repurchases, which the large cap companies are better able to afford. I see large cap as being a good hedge against potentially weaker macro. In that situation, small caps tend to suffer and large caps do better
1: central banks, we can't avoid them. And your hot uh, potatoes, what would you drop?
0: With expectation of policy rates being lower for longer, I would short bank equities or be underweight bank equities.
3: Okay, Tim, what about your hot cakes? What do you love? bit of an emerging market flavor again i quite like chinese government bonds and local currency actually I think you get a good good yield there we're likely to see further easing by the authorities and also they're moving into the developed market bond indices gradually over the ah, next so couple so of years will be a long-term interest uh, driven be, yes, that way yes yes like and liquidity and uh, activity should improve there as well okay and your hot potatoes um yeah again with an em I and mean, we think there are plenty of opportunities uh, in other places but i'd be wary at this point of the sort of higher quality hard currency stuff uh, your triple b rated sovereigns have had a Good run this year, and we'll probably move out of those. Okay, and David, finally, your hotcakes. The hotcake is the material sector of the equity market.
2: Um, Why is that? Well, I think one is forced to be in the equity market is because of the arguments we've talked about on this podcast. Um, but you, you can't avoid the fact that the equity market is at or near all time highs. So, how do you protect yourself? Well, I'm thinking that if we do have a downturn in the economy, which pulls down earnings in the equity market the likely next response of governments is to increase uh, fiscal spending. And they'll do that materials. with big projects right. to infrastructure, right. that sort of thing. Correct. And seeing as the material sector hasn't done as, as well as others, um, its valuation is quite attractive. Interesting. Too.
1: And what about your hot potatoes?
2: I've got two. Uh, the core one is to be short German government bonds, Negative yielding, very flat curve, even if your government bonds, your German government bonds are doing well, that means much lower yields, even more negative, which means the rest of your portfolio must be getting hammered. Um, And the other alternative is you have some kind of taper tantrum as Christine Lagarde comes in and says, I'm ready to raise interest rates which is negative for the asset class. I, I'd struggle to see a positive. So you have the bunds from your uh, portfolio? I would, I would.
1: Um, and uh, you, got, you said you got two. I'm going yeah. to allow you exceptionally you. a second. Well, yes.
2: My more niche one really is um, to short sugar. And the reason I say that, I've spoken to a couple of investors recently who've asked me to consider the exclusion of sugar-related companies as part of an expansion of an ESG-sensitive portfolio. So the ethics of diet
1: correct yeah <laughs> okay you've heard of low carbon now it's low carbohydrate um, a new uh, <laughs> a new fund heading your way That uh, is a wonderful note to end on. Um, I'd like to uh, thank my guests, Wen Wen, Tim, David, and uh, in the refectory, Ian. I hope that's given you an insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you'd like more detail, it's published in full on our website. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, as always, just ask your Fidelity contact. Our producer was Seb Morton-Clark. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Goodbye.
3: Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future returns. Reference to specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities and is included for illustration purposes only.